Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Before we get started, are you looking for a podcast featuring two people discussing their life through the lens of mental illness? You probably don't realize it, but you need to be listening to a bipolar, a schizophrenic, and a podcast featuring me, Gabe Howard, and Schizophrenic NYC founder, Michelle Hammer. Remember, if you aren't listening, then you aren't listening. Go to psychcentral.com slash BSP and check it out. Please welcome to the show Dan Chabelle, author of Back to Human. Online and mobile technologies have created the illusion that today's workers feel highly connected to one another. Dan says that in reality, most feel isolated. Dan, welcome to the show. So happy to be here, Gabe. Well, we really appreciate you being here. So first, just to, to, just to put it all out there, technology is why this podcast exists. As you mentioned uh, during your little pre-interview, you're in New York City. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Vin is in Sacramento, California. We're using technology to connect. And of course, our listeners are downloading the podcast and, and hearing this incredible conversation. So the first thing that enters into my mind is, why are you being mean to technology? Yeah, I'm not being mean to technology. I have realized the power of technology through my career because it has enabled me to connect with everyone, anywhere, at any time. It's given us freedom and flexibility to work from home or a co-working space and really do what, be in charge of our own career and life. But at the same time, it's also isolated us and created weaker connections, which has led to more loneliness and less commitment to our teams and organizations as a result of overuse and misuse of it. So really what I'm trying to do with this book is generate more self-awareness that people are overusing and misusing the technology and forcing them to create more human connections through the technology instead of using it as a crutch to communication. We tap our phones over 2,600 times a day and look at our phones every 15 minutes. So if we're really addicted to technology, and we're using it to avoid the face-to-face conversations that are so critical to our mental health. Well, Dan, saying it that way makes it seem like it's an intentional thing. It's like we're, we're using our phones to avoid something distasteful in, in the real world. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, there was one study that was conducted that found that someone with 150 Facebook friends only has three that they can count on an emotional crisis. So we want to feel like we're so connected, but in reality, how many people are really going to call us if we're in the hospital? And that's really how I define real friendship. You know, I'm, I live in New York, you're in Ohio, in California. You can be around so many people, but no one at the same time. Meaning that people are physically there with you, but not emotionally or spiritually uh, or, or mentally there because they're looking at their phone. They're counting on their device to answer all the questions for them and to do the work that a leader or a friend should be doing, right? And being there with you physically. And so we've, we've used technology too much. We've overused uh-huh. it. It's become an addiction. And that is, that's hurt, hurt our health. It's hurt our relationships. And so we need to get back to human and be smarter with how we're using it and let it be a bridge to more human connection. Let it get you to that conference room or to that social event. But when you're physically there, to actually be there and present with other people. One of the things that I think that it's interesting that you said is that the average person looks at their phone every 15 minutes. And that actually struck me as 
as wrong. I thought that has to be incorrect because I look at my phone probably about every two minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't imagine going an entire 15 minutes not looking at my phone. But I understand what you're saying about being present. One of the constant struggles in my marriage is, uh, honey, put the phone away. And it, and it really is both ways. It's, it's, it's her saying it to me. It's me saying it to her because it's just so easy to go out to dinner and sit there and ignore each other. So I, I believe that's what you're saying, right? Like making your reservation on, on your phone, good idea. Using your phone at dinner and ignoring your spouse, bad idea. Absolutely. I, I had interviewed someone for the book. I interviewed 100 young top leaders for the book. And one of them told me that him and his wife in bed would just look at their devices instead of talk with each other. And they created a rule to not allow technology in the bedroom. And then in the workplace, many, many leaders are saying, hey, when you're in a physical meeting room, put your phones in the middle of the table so you can, they can freely brainstorm and share ideas that can translate into new innovations, creativity, and impactful work. Instead of doing work when they're supposed to be interacting with others. So a meeting is supposed to be a meeting where you're interacting and not one where you're sitting there doing work outside of that meeting that could be done later. Um, and so this is all really translates into isolation. You look in the workplace now, even if you go to a physical office, people are having lunch at their desk instead of actually asking a coworker to lunch. So we're actually you know, using technology as a ex post facto of everything. And we're, you know, it's so interesting. In the study I did with Virgin Pulse of over 2,000 managers or employees in 10 countries, we found that email is the biggest culprit. People would much rather email than have a face-to-face conversation, yet research in the Harvard Business Review says that one face-to-face conversation is more successful than 34 emails back and forth. Wow, that's incredible. Now, one of the things, I I heard bed, and, and that made me happy because I love to sleep, but... As somebody with bipolar disorder, I have to practice something called sleep hygiene. And long before phones were as ubiquitous as they are now, I had to do certain things that a lot of my friends saw as weird. For example, I have never in my adult life had a television in my bedroom. And now that phones are here, I leave my phone charging downstairs. It's it's literally not close to me. I can't roll over in the middle of the night and check it. I don't use it in bed because these things impact my sleep. So it's, it sounds like you're saying, and, and, and please, you know, explain it better. We'll go with explain it better. It sounds like you're saying that, that phones are really taking away from the goal of your job or your career rather than adding to it in some cases. Like we need to practice work hygiene. Yeah. So when I interviewed the 100 young leaders, they, they described technology as being a double-edged sword. It's really about how you're using it and your goal to not misuse it or overuse it. Uh, and depending on different situations, like let technology and all this artificial intelligence eliminate processes that are annoying, enable you to get to the same place at the same time with your friends or coworkers. But when you're there, be present. It, it's so interesting because so many people sleep with their cell phone, yet it creates poor sleep. And there was a recent study by UC Berkeley that found that poor sleep triggers viral loneliness and social rejection. So if you don't get a good night's sleep, it's going to affect your relationships the next day in the workplace or at home because you're tired, you're grumpy, you don't want to deal with people. And that in itself can be make you miserable and, and give you some sort of isolation and loneliness. We're hearing occasionally about 
being addicted to technology. Do you think that's a good way to put it? Yeah, and the technology is purposely making you addicted, right? So all these like behavioral scientists who work for Google and Facebook and all these tech companies, their goal is to get you addicted to their apps and websites because that's how they make money. The more you use these websites, these apps, these phones, the more money they make, right? right? Because, you know, the more you use the phone, you got to upgrade the maintenance. You got to get maybe if your screen breaks like mine just did, I got to get a new screen. And so it is constantly making them money. So the incentive is to get you addicted. And so it's really on the individual like us on the phone or people listening to recognize the addiction, to be aware that you're using it too much. And then maybe to, to turn alerts off or to put your phone in another room um, to be more conscious of how you're using it, when you're using it, and for what purpose. That's very, very interesting. Now, I had mentioned sleep hygiene, and sleep hygiene has clear rules, like only use your bed for sleep and sex, and don't have a television in in your bedroom, don't bring your technology, and these are, these are clear and simple rules. And I know this may be a difficult question to answer, but are there clear and simple rules to not being a technology addict? Yeah, I mean, I think each individual has to make their own rules, but I think in general it's, you know, if you're in a meeting, do, do not look at your phone or your technology, right? If you are in a, in a training class, you're trying to learn something new, only use the technology if it's how you're interacting with the rest of the students or the teacher or if you're given an assignment in the workplace or in, the workplace or in that class. Um, you know, if you're at home and you're having dinner with your family, you know, make sure the technology is not near that table so you can have a, a good conversation that's meaningful with the people you care about the most because you might not be seeing them throughout the day. Use technology to schedule calls, not just for your professional life, but for your personal life. So many people say this, and I'm sure you might even as well. You know, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. But we should say the same thing about personal activities on our calendar, too. You know, carve out time on your personal calendar to be with friends, to be with family, to go to social events, uh, and really force yourself to create these habits. So I'll give you a good example. You know, in New York City, there's so many events going on. And it's so easy to go to an event with a friend. But when you're in, the, at the, in an event with your friend, you're going to spend the whole time with that friend. So go to an event alone and pay money to go to that event so it forces the behavior. So it's really got to, you got to kind of like hack your day and figure out what's working for you and then, and then focus on creating those habits because it does take time to break habits and form new ones. So in order to, to cut back on, on this and, and have better uh, technology hygiene, I suppose, is it better to you know, go cold turkey in these kind of things or, or try to wean ourselves off of it? It's not about even weeding yourself off of it. It's about when and how you're using it. So use it for the purpose of creating more human interactions, right? For instance, schedule a call using a chatbot or even using just Google Calendar and make sure on that call that you're fully present and you're not looking down at a screen, right? So it can be that simple. So it's really creating the habit. Let the technology... Do the work you don't want to do to schedule the call. Do the work you don't want to do to, you know, answer basic questions from applicants, let's say, in the workplace. Uh, and then wait until the actual interview, if you're interviewing someone, or 
you know, if you're on a date, you know, be fully present during those situations. Using it to as a bridge to human connection and not a barrier. Using it to force the habit of speak, picking up the phone or, you know, connecting with people in person. I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like once you have safety and shelter, you know, and food accounted for, then it's your love needs, right? You need to be around other people. And in the study, we found that half of the global workforce has five or fewer friends at work and 10%, about 10%, has zero friends at work. So people lack friends in the workplace, yet we spend so much time working a third of our lives. And then, you know, at home, if we don't have meaningful work, if we don't have good relationships at work with our boss and our team, that carries into our personal life. And that's one of the things that I've studied is if you have a bad work experience, it hurts your personal life. And no one, no wife, your children, you know, your friends want to hear every day about how much you dislike your manager or how, you know, you haven't been promoted or you're, you, you're, you feel unfulfilled. I mean, that's why the first chapter is called Focus on Fulfillment. you got to get your, your own fulfillment right before you can support others. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. One of the questions that I have is, you know, people say that you you go to work to earn a paycheck. You don't go to work to make friends. Now, I'm a very extroverted person, so I have never followed that, but I have heard it my entire life. Remember, these are your coworkers. They're not your friends. And in many work cultures, they're not even your coworkers. They're your competition. How do we break through that? Because, you know, like you mentioned, if you're fighting for a promotion, you're probably fighting your friend pool for that promotion. So I have to imagine that that can be pretty isolating and make people feel pretty lonely. Yeah, I interviewed Richard Branson last year, and he said that if you have, you know, friends outside of work, you should have an equal amount of friends at work, right? Because you're spending so much time at work. The average work week is 47 hours a week for a full-time salaried employee in, in the United States and 43 for part-time worker. And so, you know, we're always working. Not having your phone is a new vacation. People are responding to emails on vacation outside of work hours. You're always kind of working. And because we're spending so much and dedicating so much of our, our, our lives to our work, if we do not like the work we're doing and don't find meaning in it, and we don't like who we're doing that work with, we're going to be disengaged. And 85% of the global workforce is, is disengaged or actively disengaged. So that's why work is kind of a hostile environment. People are unsatisfied, unhappy, and that affects your mental well-being. And so I focus so much of my career on improving the workplace because if you get work right, it really helps your personal life. Outside of leadership, because I, I know having a good leader will help you get work right, but outside of that, how does somebody get work right? And I'm making air quotes, just nobody can see them because it's a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, getting work right is, if you don't have a job or you're looking for a new job, being very thoughtful and specific about the type of job you want that leverages your strengths and capabilities. And not just being interviewed, but interviewing the manager to make sure 
he or she and the rest of the team, you know, fits in line with you and your values, making sure that, that your values are representing your company and just making sure that you're in a, a strong position where, you know, you're doing work that has impact and then you're using technology in many cases to eliminate the, you know, operational administrative work that you don't really want to be doing. So you can focus more on more of the meaningful, impactful work that leverages your emotional intelligence and IQ. And I think getting work right is about being in the right environment with the right people doing the right work. So it's the, it, you need all three of those to be aligned. And in choosing the right leader to work for is so critical, like you're saying, because you want a leader who's very empathetic. You know, if you come and you're bipolar or you suffer from anxiety like me into the workplace, you need a leader who can empathize with you and meet you where you are and support you if you need a mental health day, for instance. Um, you also need a leader that can create a safe environment where you can freely share ideas without repercussions. So you feel empowered and you feel like your ideas are taking into account when there's decision making. And you need a leader who creates a culture of shared learning. This is chapter three where, you know, I'm all about shared learning where, you know, things are moving so fast, businesses moving and, and changing so quickly. So in order to adapt to those changes and be relevant as an individual trying to build a career, we have to rely on others to share information and share what you know uh, to keep up with the speed of business. So I think you need a leader that embraces learning and supports you from a learning development perspective, creates a safe environment where you share ideas, and it's empathetic and can really relate to your situation and support your needs where you are and what you, and what you need when you need it. I couldn't agree more. I've worked for a number of companies over the years, and I've seen really awful leaders who are so completely out of touch with with their workers that it's just not even funny. And and then I've seen a changeover even within the same company where the entire culture of a of a company has changed because of a new leader coming in and having some more empathetic ways of looking at things and doing things. And it it makes such a huge difference that. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Yeah, I, I have one example. I interviewed someone for, for the book, and she was relocating from North Carolina to New York City. And the cost of living in New York City is extremely expensive, as you probably know or can imagine. And when she moved there, she was really stressed out and struggling. And her manager took her in as if she was his child and supported her, you know, in enabling her to we like functional within the organization and, and provide her with everything that she needed in order to be successful. And as a result, even as a young leader, she's been there for over a decade and this is a big company. So all it takes is a little empathy and understanding that, you know, people are in their own situations. You never know what's going through someone's head or where someone's coming from or the type of background they grew up in and to be able to take a step back and, and really help them succeed uh, and give them individualized attention. You know, it's not just about creating a you know, workplace program to support the whole organization. No, it's also about satisfying people's individual needs or you know, everyone's in a different you know, path and has different goals and suffers from different, you know, maybe mental health. And, and you need to recognize that if you want that individual to be engaged and happy at work and that happiness ends up leading to higher productivity and a, a leader who becomes more successful and has a team longer than others. Now, the cynic and the pessimist in me says, isn't getting over-involved with your employees 
just a bad idea? Doesn't this open you up to human resources issues, lawsuits, etc.? I think first and foremost, you should meet with your HR people to see what you can and can't say, right? Because you kind of have to, otherwise your position could be, you know, in trouble and you, there could be re- repercussions. But in general, what people want right now, since we're working so many hours at work, is to bring their full self into the workplace. And their full self is not just the projects they do, but what their life brings, who they are outside of the workplace. And so it's becoming more important every year, and we're going to just see how this pans out, that companies are going to have to step up to the plate, promote leaders who are more empathetic, and create programs. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, PwC in the UK, they have a whole mental health awareness program where people wear green ribbons. And the green ribbons represent, hey, you know, it's okay to talk to me about mental health. So they're creating a culture where, you know, people are comfortable being themselves in the workplace. And I think that's so powerful in today's society. And we're going to just see more and more of it because, you know, as you know, it's like a third of people in America suffer from anxiety and depression. And that's not even bipolar and and the other, you know, mental illnesses. And so it's really important to account for all these because people have always suffered. It's not like my, you know, it's not like my grandfather didn't suffer from extreme anxiety. It's just no one knew it was anxiety back then and there was no treatment and there was no awareness. So all of this existed. It's just much more visible now. And you have celebrities like Mariah Carey and others that have come out and, you know, Mariah Carey being bipolar and other celebrities coming out and being more comfortable. And that's allowed other people to come out and feel safe about it. So it's, we're headed for major changes. That's why what you're doing is so powerful. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. I'm 42 years old, and, and I remember growing up, my, my father's workplace, my father is a retired truck driver, but, you know, we, we got a, a Thanksgiving turkey every Thanksgiving from the workplace. We had holiday parties, and to be fair, we called them Christmas parties back then, but there was a lot of events at my father's workplace that he brought his children to. We don't seem to have that anymore. So it sounds like to me that you're saying that we need to go back to the way that it used to be done. So everything old is new again. Did we once have this right and then we just moved away from it and that was a mistake? Wow, you you really hit on a key topic because only 20% of companies have social activities and company outings for their employees. Yet what we found in the Virgin study is that that's the number one way to engage uh, employees on, on a human, basic human level. And so absolutely social activities are really, really important, right? And back in, you know, we have a whole comedy sketch that we're releasing for the book and it's a birthday party from 1980 versus today. And in 1980, you know, people were celebrating in the office and they bring birthday cakes. And, and today they use, a, you know, we're using Facebook, you know, invites to get people to a location. And then when they're there, people are just on their phone taking, they're more, people are more concerned about taking pictures uh, so that people on social media can, can look at the pictures and like them and comment on them than the actual birthday boy or girl. So I, yeah, I think in many ways, the old, old is the new, new, right? It's like the best way to stand out if you want to get a job is after the interview, you, do, you write a handwritten note instead of an email because no one's doing that. So you stand out. So it's like a lot of these old principles actually allow you to stand out now. You know, if you want to network with someone and all you do is email, that's less effective than, you know, going and meeting them for coffee because that's how you form the stronger relationship that will lead to more opportunities. 
So I absolutely agree that organizations should promote more social events. And I think it's not just the organization, it's the leader, it's the employee that needs to, you know, take ownership of this and, and really get engaged. Because if the, the company's not doing it, maybe you should organize a tennis league or some sort of, you know, social outing with your coworkers to get them know get to know them more because you're spending so much time with them. So if technology is causing all of these problems with social isolation and all that and and everything in the business place, do you think that businesses should have bans on certain things? Should they, you know, not allow phones in the in the meeting rooms or anything at all like that? No, I don't think so. I think we have to treat people like adults, regardless of age, global location. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, the leader and the employees should be more smart about how they're using the technology, right? The book, in a sense, is a, a wake-up call to people to have them rethink about how and where they're using the technology and to use it more purposefully. So I think what's really smart is, hey, let's get back to human. Let's be more conscious about how we're using this technology. It is good. You know, it's, it's helped me build a good career. It's connected people from all around the world. But, hey, let's use it as a bridge to the human connection because the human connection is what we need, and we can't lose track of that because it's happening whether we like it or not. Dan, thank you so much. Uh, please tell us the title of the book and where we can find it. Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, uh, indie bookstores or anywhere in China, UK, Australia, Singapore, wherever books are sold. <laughs> I love it. And what's your website, Dan? It's danshawbell.com, S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. And you can listen to my podcast, Five Questions with Dan Shawbell as well. And hey, I may be on it someday. I'm just teasing. I have to be like Condoleezza <laughs> Rice level. Dan, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Is there, do you have any final words and then we'll head on out? Yeah, I think one of the big messages that I've been telling people now, and I think this is really important and it's resonating, is people need to lean into who they actually are because that's where your greatest strengths lie. It makes you unique. And by bringing that into the workplace and having a leader who is supportive of that, you'll be successful and everyone will win as a result because people like people, we all have flaws, we all have things we're going through, and that's how we bind with each other and form strong relationships at work and outside of work. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. 
Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.